Are you ready? Okay. Embarrassing. Though. Oh my god. Oh, I can't just like leave you hanging like that. All right, guys, whatever. Welcome back to another episode of The Least Favored. I kind of want to start saying I'm your host, Natalie. I feel like I should be saying something else. I thought you, you said you want to start saying Stop. That. Oh, okay. But I don't know what else I should be saying. Like, I feel like we should be introducing each other and like using All interesting right, this words. Is my host, Natalie. I thought I'm you were going to say something I'm better. This is Natalie. She runs the shit here. You know what I'm saying? She gets it popping. Right. Let them know. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. What else? Keep going. Keep going. That's it. Resident party animal. <laughs> hookah smoker. Hookah connoisseur. Hookah mommy. Hookah mommy. Hookah mommy. You know what I'm saying? Um, yes. And we are with Anthony, the mastermind, the technological genius, the, I don't know, sound engineer. Is that what you call that? <laughs> what the I fuck mean, you call that? I want... Producer, yeah, like, you know, yeah, just a chill, laid back guy who yeah. handles all of my mood swings and uh, major life crises, right? Mm. Yes, all right. So, this week is a special episode, yes. it's a little bit different than our normal episodes. Correct. So, I did an interview with a criminal psychologist named Dr. Lena Haji, and she has been working with, um, I guess psychopaths, serial killers, inmates working in the prison system for like over 20 years. Um, it was a great, great conversation. And the reason why I wanted to do this was because I saw the Jeffrey Dahmer, the Jeffrey Dahmer doc. Yes. And usually, you know me, that's not really my type of thing to watch. Not your genre. Not my genre. I'm a rom-com person. And so, but like there was so much buzz going, like buzzing around it. And I was like, you know what? Let me see what the hype is about. And it was actually very interesting. And um, I kind of just wanted to understand more of like the minds of serial killers or psychopaths. And I wanted someone who can actually be like, teach us some things, an expert, not just Googling random shit. So I reached out to her on Instagram and I'm actually really proud of myself because, you know, I don't be approaching people for shit. I just fucking went for it. You did a very good job conducting the interview. Thank you. Very good questions. And she got some really good information. Yes. It's dope in here. Um, Like one thing uh, about trauma. And like yes. how people just think everything they yes. go through is like So trauma. yeah, so briefly, yeah, let me talk about what we spoke about just briefly. So we talk about her experience working with inmates in the prison system. We got the real definition of trauma, because not every yeah. little thing that happens to you is traumatic. So like when I stubbed my toe today, I wasn't traumatic? That's not traumatic, Anthony. Okay. Cut it off. Just making sure. We spoke about trauma bonding, real trauma bonding. Um, and how much responsibility can we place on criminals due to their traumatic past? So she gave me a lot of good information on that. And then we talk about like the characteristics of serial killers, psychopaths, and the difference between being psychotic and psychopathic, because there is a difference. Yes. Yes. And then we spoke about her favorite uh, serial killer, Richard Ramirez, who I don't even know who the, the fuck that was. Stalker. I definitely knew this. And um, so, yeah, so I hope you guys enjoy it. And I have a question. Before we transition to that, I just had a question, right? Okay, go. How do you feel about, so, like, when the news, like, someone, like, becomes, like, I don't want to say someone becomes a serial killer. Someone's a killer. Uh-huh. And when they try to, like, humanize them. Like, how do you feel about that? Okay, right? I feel like I know why you're asking me that. Because you felt... People were saying that about the Jeffrey Dahmer thing. Well, because also what you just said there, too. <sighs> what did I say? Something. Oh, like, how much responsibility can you How much place? responsibility can you place? Yeah. Because, like... What if someone has been abused as a kid growing up, right. and then as they get older, they only know how to, they only know abuse, right? So that's what they do to someone else, right? And it's like, damn, this person had this crazy childhood, mm-hmm. 
it's like well you see so she actually gets into the i actually mm -hmm. asked her that and yeah. she actually gets into it so i don't want to like butcher her explanation <laughs> that's, but why, that's how you feel about it briefly okay i still you. so what we both concluded and how i really do feel about this is like we all have a traumatic past. Like, mm -hmm. all of us have gone through something, but that's still no excuse to be a shitty person or to commit crimes, right? Like, that doesn't excuse you, but there are people who really do have a real diagnosis and they can't help it, unfortunately. That's mm -hmm. just what it is. So I understand both sides of it, but overall, like, you really gotta, like, dig deeper because you can't just say, oh, because of this, this is why I'm a shitty person or this is why I killed this this many people. Like, no, it has yeah. to be valid. Okay. Um. So, yeah. So, can we get into the interview now? We can get into the interview All now. right. Let's do a little... Transition. I don't even know. <laughs> oh, my God. I don't know if that's appropriate. Awesome. All right. Hi. Hi. <laughs> Nice to meet you. I'm Natalie. Um, Hi, Natalie. The guy, the guy that was talking, um, he's my co-host and my producer and engineer, all that good stuff. Okay. So, um, okay. So basically my podcast, we talk about um, mental health relationships, but then we also like to do a lot of like topics where we're learning with the people who are listening with us. And so obviously like once I started, you know, the craze of the Jeffrey Dahmer documentary, <laughs> And I was born in 92, so I wasn't even really, like, aware of what was going on. But it was just something like, okay, how are people born like this? What's going on? How, how could you notice the signs? What goes through the mind of a serial killer, a psychopath? And so I, I looked you up on Instagram, and you are so informative. You <laughs> have all your videos. I literally watch it every Monday. You come <laughs> up with the videos, and you explain, like, the misdiagnosis and stuff. And I'm like, wow, like, this is so fascinating to me. Thank you. And so I just wanted you to like come and just teach teach me something. <laughs> yes. Okay. Well, first of all, thank yeah. you for that amazing feedback. I really appreciate that because no, every sure. time I do a video, I feel like I'm just talking to myself. But that's so, <laughs> I, I'm I'm really honored and glad that somebody you know somebody's listening. So thank you. I no, yeah, it. for sure. So I guess we could just start like with introductions, your name, where you're from, how long you've okay. been doing what you do. Okay. Um, okay, so my name is Dr. Lena Haji. I'm a licensed clinical psychologist in the state of Florida. I practice um, mostly forensic psychology as well as clinical psychology. Um, where am I from? Uh, ethnically, my mom is French. My dad is Indian from East Africa. I was born in Switzerland and raised in New York. <laughs> oh my God! <laughs> Wait, what part of New York? I was born in the city. Well, I was raised in the city. I lived in the Bronx. I lived in Queens. I lived in Brooklyn. I lived everywhere. So I grew up on, are you from New York? Yeah, I'm from the Bronx. Actually. Oh, yes. I used to, yeah. I was in college. Oh my God, I went there too. No way. Yeah. So I'm, I got, I'm a speech therapist. Oh, perfect. My, my girlfriend who went to Lehman is a speech therapist. So I, I did my bachelor's at Lehman. I did, I went a little nuts with school. I did my bachelor's at Lehman. I did my first master's at John Jay. I did my second mm -hmm. master's here in Miami. And then I did my doctorate in Miami. But yeah, I was at Lehman. I lived, um, you know where the McDonald's is on Williams Bridge Road? Oh um, my God, yes. Yeah, so yes. I, lived, I lived right behind that McDonald's for like seven years. Oh my God. Yes. I was closer to like Jerome, like Gun Hill, Jerome Avenue area. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh my yes. God, that's so crazy. Yeah, if I was a little younger, I bet you we'd know the same people because I know people who are still <laughs> on Gun Hill. Oh yeah, 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 yeah. 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 Um, so how long have you been in Miami? So I moved in Miami in 2009 to do my doctorate um, and I... I stayed here from 2009 to 2015 when you finish a doctorate you have to do um pre-doctoral residency yeah. and 
postdoctoral fellowship. I did that mm-hmm. in California for three years. And then I moved back to Miami in 2018. Wow. Would you ever like, do you miss New York at all? I miss New York like crazy because Miami people are not the best. And I'm in New York <laughs> until I die. Um, yeah. I feel I, the New York in you though. Yeah, I, yeah, I yeah, feel yeah, the no. vibe. <laughs> Thank you. That's such a compliment. Um, so yeah, like I, I, I'm in New York until I die, but I, and my family and friends are all still in New York, but here's the thing. I hate the cold. Like I hate it. I hate it. Hate it. I'm one of those people like freezing now. Like, yeah, it no, is it's so cold. Yeah. 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 I want, I want to move to Miami, but like, I'm just like, uh, bacon, egg and cheese on the corner. <laughs> like, yeah. You know what I mean? Chopped cheese. Like yeah. it's just whatever. Um, okay. So. I wanted to get into what are your areas of study specifically? So what do you like mainly focus on, I guess? So, okay. So yeah. So my main area is forensic psychology, but a lot of people don't understand that forensic psychology is also Mm -hmm. a huge field. I mean, you can work with male offenders, female offenders, juveniles, uh, sex offenders. You can do risk assessments, competency, death penalty cases. You can do treatment. You can do, so, so even forensic psychology is a huge diverse field. So my areas of um, specialty are competency evaluation. So that's kind of, um, if, is somebody competent enough to proceed to trial and to go through with the criminal process? Um, I worked in year in prison for 20 years. Um, I worked in nine prisons in four states. So I was very much into correctional psychology, which is a little yeah. different from forensic because correctional, you're in the facility, you're doing treatment, you're doing dealing with inmates. Mm-hmm. Day, whereas forensic mm-hmm. is more um, taking psych- clinical psychology and answering a legal question. So it was a, it's an okay. easy transition, if you will, but so, yeah. Um, so I don't do much treatment anymore. I, I also do a lot of um, malingering, which is a lot of, you know, that's part of evaluation. So inmates kind of faking mentally ill so that they don't have to face the consequences of that. Oh my God. How much do you get of that? A lot, a lot, a lot, a lot. Because you have, so... when you're doing competency evaluations, you have to realize that, um, you know, that's really the starting point for where they're going to, whether they're going to go to prison or whether they're going to go to a psych hospital, whether they're going to have a, a huge sentence or a yeah. huge sentence. Yeah. So I deal with that all the time. It's my favorite. I love it. Cause it's like a game to me. It's like a puzzle. <laughs> <laughs> well, I have a question with that though. Like, um, I guess it's like, I don't even know how, how I can like explain it, but if someone does commit a crime though, wouldn't that still, even let's say they, if they're not diagnosed with a mental disorder, don't you, is there a way that you can still count that brief moment of like a moment of insanity, but like they don't have a disorder? So that's a very, very good question. And that comes out, uh, comes up a lot in what we call NGRI cases, not guilty by mm-hmm. reason of insanity. So being not guilty by reason of insanity is very, very rare. You have to really prove that at the time of the crime, the person was essentially disconnected from reality in a sense that like, uh, you know, I don't know if you're familiar with the the Andrea Yates um, case, but she, mm-hmm. okay, so she drowned all five of her children. She killed all five of her children. Oh, yes. Okay. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So she, was found not, she was found not guilty by reason of insanity because she genuinely believed, she had a psychotic thought process. She genuinely believed that killing her five children was saving them from the devil. She really believed that. Like, this wasn't a BS kind of defense. How could you prove that she really believed? You know what I mean? So, so like, 
Yeah. That's, that's where we come in. How do you prove yeah. that? Because anybody could say, well, I killed them because I thought that was saving them right. from the death. So there's- And if they're a good enough actor or actress. Like- Correct. But so when you're trained in forensic psychology and especially in that area, um, first of all, there's records, record review, right? That's imperative. Uh, you, you have to check with her family, her doctors, her other treating providers. Was she on meds? Was she ever hospitalized? Are there hospital records? Before this crime even happened, was there like a huge history that she was psychotic? That's number one. Number two, you know, then there's psychological testing, which picks up on faking illness, so to speak. It's not perfect, but it's definitely an objective way to figure out if this person is actually mentally ill, are they malingering, which is basically Mm -hmm. full of crap. Um, so it, it's, it's a very intensive process, but, um, so that, so, so anyway, that's, that's how you figure out if they were in, and insanity is a legal term. It's not a clinical term, you know, mm-hmm. um, le- lawyers and the legal system is very black and white. Either you're crazy or you're not crazy. Whereas for us, it's much more gray than that. We're all a little crazy. You know what I mean? And like anybody who commits a murder or something, you know, a really serious offense at the time was probably a little quote unquote crazy. The main difference is, were they disconnected with reality? And here's the key. Did they know the difference between right and wrong? Was there an appreciation of the crime? And so if you kill all your five children, but you genuinely believe that you're saving them from the devil and you continue to believe that, and there's a long history that you believe that, Odds are you were actually insane legally at the time of the crime. Um, but you get a lot of malingering for, for that kind of stuff. So I don't oh know. Oh my God. Yeah, I, no, that was great. Possible. No, mm-hmm. because I always wondered, I'm like, that was a great explanation because I always wondered like anybody can say, oh, well, I had a moment of, you know, like I lost it. I reached a breaking point and we all have our breaking point. Right. So it's like, but I didn't know it was such an extensive process. That's actually, that's great. I had no idea. That's a no, lot. it's an extremely extensive process. Yeah, that is a lot. I mean, the amount of time, energy, and resources that goes into a not guilty by reason of insanity evaluation is huge. It's a lot, a lot, a lot of work. So it's not just, you know, because you'll have a lot of inmates that'll be like, I, I evaluated an inmate last week who um, raped a 13-year-old girl three times. And so... I was talking to him. He could tell me about his childhood. He could tell me about his schooling. He could tell me about, he had no mental health history. He could tell me every Mm -hmm. single detail of his life, except when I started asking about the rapes, he was like, I don't remember. I blacked out. I don't remember. I blacked out. So there's a few things. So that's already red flag. Number one, right? Right. The fact that you remember everything else about your life, but you don't remember this one moment. That's not really how the brain works. Number two, he had no history of mental illness. I reviewed records for about two hours and there was no indication. Number three, mm-hmm. um, you know, the, 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 that's that's really not how the brain works. You know, you don't just kind of black out. Yes, you can go into a crazy rage or yes, you can, mm-hmm. you know, kind of disassociate or so. So again, it's, it's extensive and you really have to be mm-hmm. thorough. Um, but the bottom line is, is he was full of it. There's no way you remember everything except when you raped the 13 year old girl 13 times. Yeah. And he knew enough to hide it. He knew enough to lie about it. He knew he, there was very calculated, yeah. you know, that shows that your thought process is intact. So you told her to lie, you gave her alcohol, like you knew what you were doing, you know? So there, there are ways for forensic psychologists to figure all that stuff out. Mm-hmm. And I saw that on your page, you used to treat victims, right? I but did. But then you I switched. Do. 
Oh, you still do. Well, so I, I, it's not that I, it's not that I switched. I've, I've generally always worked with offenders. The thing is a lot of offenders are also victims. They also have a history of trauma. Mm. Um, So even if you're treating offenders, you can also be treating, you know, they're not mutually exclusive. You're going to be a offender and a victim, you know? Mm -hmm. Uh, So there's that. And also, so I, I did a lot, I I did a little bit of uh, treating victims when I was um, in, in training, um, the reason I switched is because it's, it's, it's actually the reason I switched is because I found treating victims to be much more difficult in the sense that like, you really tend to take that stuff home with you, especially yeah. when it's children, you think about it a lot. It's hard to shut off. God bless psychologists who work and therapists that work with, um, v- victims of abuse. Cause it's very difficult for me. Um, this might sound a little cold, but at least I know my limits to work with mm-hmm. offenders, it's easy to shut off and just kind of go about your day. For me, working with the victims was very hard and very consuming. So it just wasn't my my preference. That's it. Yeah. No, yeah, that makes sense. Um, I also, okay. <clears throat> so now we're going to get into like some terms. Okay. And defining some terms because there's a lot of things that we all use. Like now trauma is a big deal, right? Okay. And we're all traumatized from things, right? But I really wanted you to first just explain like the true meaning of what trauma is and what are like the real symptoms associated with it. Okay. So, so yes, trauma is a very trendy vogue term and everybody has trauma and everybody has, and and I, I immediately say to that, like, no, we all have had difficult moments in our life. We all have had things that have negatively affected us. We all have things that have, you know, impacted us. That's part of life. That's everybody. But does everybody have trauma? No. Trauma is really either experiencing or witnessing an adverse effect that absolutely impacted you to the point where you ended up having psychiatric symptoms. So, and and two people can be can experience or witness the same events and have completely different outcomes, right? Mm-hmm. Look at war veterans, for example, two soldiers could go to the same war and one can come back fine and one can come back with extreme PTSD. So there's a lot of factors that goes into that. So when you're talking about how trauma can negatively affect someone, what you're really talking about is a a, a trauma disorder. And for the sake of discussion, we'll talk about PTSD. So PTSD, post-traumatic stress disorder, is when you develop, again, psychiatric symptoms in response to a traumatic event. And those symptoms include things like flashbacks, um, you know, intrusive thoughts, having the thoughts Mm -hmm. about the trauma coming in all the time, nightmares hypervigilance. So that's like being on your toes all the time. You know, you see this a lot in mm-hmm. war, war veterans. They're, they're always kind of on their toes because they've been conditioned yeah. that way. Um, paranoia, same thing. You know, you have to certain sit a certain place in a restaurant because you're scared. Maybe if you're a victim of a crime that somebody's going to come after you. Uh, poor sleep, poor mood, depression, anxiety. So in order to get a diagnosis of PTSD, it's not enough to just have a history of trauma. You have mm-hmm. to then have developed these psychiatric symptoms as a response. And again, some people have histories of trauma and they end up being quote unquote fine. And some people have histories of trauma and they end up developing um, PTSD. So trauma is an adverse event event that has negatively affected you. But mm-hmm. the problem I see in these days is because it's such a trendy term. People just mm-hmm. say like, oh, my ex broke my heart and that's traumatic. And it's like, well... 
that's not it's it's not it's not that I'm trying to diminish how difficult that is or how hard that can be, but it's not necessarily trauma because that term has become so diluted and overused. You yeah. know, it's kind of taking away from the true victims of trauma, rape rape victims and assault victims and people who have been had been through attempted murder or or things like a hurricane or an earthquake or have lost everything or war you know i can go on and on about traumatic events yeah. accidents there can be so many different kinds of traumatic events i think the problem is people tend to be so quick to be like well it's my trauma or i'm traumatized i'm traumatized mm -hmm. and that's mm -hmm. that's not really always accurate yeah i do want to say real quick if it shuts off, just click yeah. the link again, okay? okay. It's like a 30 minute, minute but because okay. we have a lot more and I don't want oh, to- I got you, I got you. I got okay, you. so boom. Another term that's super popular now, especially in the relationship world, when you get into like a toxic relationship is like trauma bonding. Mm -hmm. Like, oh, I can't let him go because we have a trauma bond. And it's like, what? So again, what is a trauma? That's a real definition of trauma bond. Okay, actually I made a video on this like two weeks ago. So trauma bonding, first of all, that's a term that's not a term I ever heard in graduate school. It's not a term that most of my colleagues heard in graduate school. It's a pretty relatively new term. So I looked up some definitions of it because I was like, what is this trauma bonding everybody's mm -hmm. talking about? Like, this doesn't make sense. So trauma bonding really has to do with a victim who identifies with their abuser. So okay. typically it's... Um, somebody who let's say a woman is in a domestic violence relationship and she's constantly being physically abused emotionally abused and yet there's that cycle of abuse right the abuser will be really nice and then they will mm -hmm. you know abuse them and then they yeah. will say they're sorry and maybe i'll never do it again and there's a cooling period and then it happens again and cycle and cycle and cycle so what happens is the victim ends up being attached to that kind of um that kind of um how would you say, you say relation like a push pull yeah like a push pull yeah the relational cycle is the way that they are attached to this human being because what happens in domestic violence relationship is it's called intermittent reinforcement right so the, okay. the flowers and the i'm sorry and the i'll never do it again that becomes something that reinforces the the abuser to stay in the relationship over and over and over again mm -hmm. so that's really what trauma bonding is what i find is that people think that trauma bonding has to do with oh i have a crappy situation you have a crappy situation and we're bonding or we both have an addiction, we're bonding. Or we both have mental health issues, we're bonding. That's not what trauma bonding is. Trauma bonding really has to do with an abusive relationship. Mm -hmm. And it can be emotionally abusive. You know, it, it doesn't necessarily have to be physically, sexually yeah. abusive. It can be emotionally yeah. abusive. Okay, awesome. See, perfect. Thank you. We needed yeah. that because... Not yes, every yes. toxic relationship is a trauma bond. Like, leave him. Just leave that, him. That means, listen, <laughs> listen. And I'm not just talking about patients or things I see on social media. Yeah. I'm talking about, like, friends who are like, I'm trauma bonded. I'm like, no, that's <laughs> not what that is. You don't, that's not, you're just, you're just settling. That's what that is. You're just settling for a shitty relationship because you're too scared to be alone and you don't want to leave or whatever the case may be. And no judgment, but that's not what trauma bonding is. No. Exactly. Exactly. Thank you. Yes. Um, okay. So now sticking with that a little bit, but moving on, like how much then with all of that, right? How much responsibility can we actually place on a criminal with when it comes to trauma? Like how traumatized do they need to be? Or like how, um, I guess like how severe does the crime need to be for you to be like, all right, it was because of his traumatic past or 
So that's a very interesting, interesting question. And again, it's, it's very, it's very complicated, right? Because mm -hmm. for, for people to say, well, I was traumatized or I had a traumatic childhood or I, or I, I have PTSD. And so I committed this crime. It's not that it's never that clear. It's never mm -hmm. that black and white, because if that were the case, that means all people who have a history of trauma would end up being criminals. And the research and the statistics shows that most people who are victims of trauma do not end up committing, do not go on to become criminals. That's not what the statistics say. I know plenty of women and men who have sexual abuse histories, who have been to war, who have been in car accidents, who have had real trauma happen to them. And they didn't go on to become murderers and, ser and serial killers or rapists or drug dealers. So that's the first thing I want to say about that. It's not such a, it's very rare for it to be very linear. You know, this horrible mm -hmm. trauma happened to me, my childhood was awful. And so now I engage in criminal activities. It's not that black and white. However, you don't want to be dismissive of a trauma history. You know, I've had um, inmates I've worked with who had extreme trauma histories where they were severely beaten as children or severely neglected or they had sexual abuse, really, uh, really horrendous tra traumatic childhoods. And so in a way, you have to take that into account because it has shape their behavior. Trauma mm -hmm. changes the brain literally. So again, they might have symptoms of PTSD. They're more paranoid. They're more hypervigilant. They're more defensive. They're more like, I'm not going to let the world hurt me because I've been so hurt. So you kind of understand that they become violent or aggressive. However, it's very hard to, to, to again, say, well, you have a trauma history. And so you engaged in this traumatic behavior because at the end of the day, it's you still have a choice, right? I don't, you still have to be accountable for your actions. I know people with horrific, horrific childhoods who did not go on to become criminals. Mm -hmm. But again, you don't want to dismiss that when you're conceptualizing an inmate, because of course it plays a role. Of course, if you had a horrible childhood, childhood or you were abused or you're, you're a female offender and you were a prostitute and you were raped repeatedly, and so you ended up being violent, I mean, all of that stuff plays a role. So I really mm -hmm. can't give like a, a, you know, a black and white cut and dry mm -hmm. answer, um, mm -hmm. but I think it needs to be individualized. You need to look at every person as an individual and what's your trauma history and how did you end up committing these crimes and and what led to that it's very it needs to be very individualized I hope that makes sense no yeah that makes total sense absolutely I laugh because you were like you still have to be accountable for your actions yeah. and yeah. it's just funny because like literally for the past month every episode we've recorded accountability comes up yeah. in every episode and that's become the word of our podcast so I'm just like wow another episode and it comes up again. well because yeah. I think people are letting go of that you know they're thinking yeah poor me, poor me you know poor me I had it bad so I can do whatever I want well I had some horrible things happen to me you might have had some horrible things happen a lot of people might have had some horrible things happen to, happen to them that doesn't mean that you know you can go on and do whatever you want on yeah it's not how yeah. it works, you know, unfortunately. Right. Even if it's not a crime, you still don't have to be a shitty person. Just in right. general. <laughs> right. Right. It doesn't excuse your be it doesn't excuse your behavior. That's not how it works. Right. 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 Exactly. All right. So now I want to get into some, I guess, popular or the most common characteristics of a serial killer. Okay. So a serial killer is somebody who commits, I believe the FBI defines it. It's really not a clinical term. It's actually a, a law enforcement term, but I think mm -hmm. the FBI defines it as somebody who engages in two or more homicides. And there's a certain uh, period of time. I'm not, I'm not exactly familiar what that is. So this is somebody who 
com commits a murder and then mm -hmm. there's a period of cooling off and then they commit another murder and then they commit another murder and they commit another murder. So, so wait, uh, real quick, would you consider then if it's not like a clinical term, right? Would they be under just like psychopaths? Probably. So it's assumed, okay. it's assumed that, you know, all serial killers are psychopaths, right? However, that's not necessarily true. So I would say probably most serial killers are psychopaths, but interestingly enough, not all psychopaths are serial, serial killers. Yes. Got it. Okay. So psychopath is more, <laughs> is a clinical term. It's, it's psychopathy is a construct. It's a, it's a combination of personality clusters that makes up somebody in order for them to be a psychopath. Whereas a serial killer is somebody who goes on committing more than one murder, more than, you know, murder after murder, after murder, after murder. So by default, most serial mm -hmm. killers are going to be psychopaths unless there's something else going on. Okay. Um, yeah. Yeah. All right. So then what are the, oh, so then what's the difference between being psychotic versus psychopathic? Great question. People mix that up all the time. So yeah. psychosis, psychotic, really has to do with um, psychotic disorders like schizophrenia. So psychosis is has really it has nothing to do with being a psychopath. They're very different. Psychosis has to do with truly seriously mentally ill people who hear voices that aren't really there. They see things that aren't really there. They usually have a disorganized thought process. They're usually, you know, the ones, unfortunately, you see a lot of them homeless. They're kind of talking to themselves and they're kind of in their own world. Um, they usually have what we call a flat affect. They don't have mm -hmm. much emotion because they're, they have a lot of internal preoccupation. So that's people who deal with delusions and hallucinations. So they hear voices that aren't there. Or they might see things that aren't there. They um, believe, you know, they're, they're delusional in the sense that they might think, I don't know, an alien is in their brain, you know, mm -hmm. uh, kind of beliefs that are not based in reality. Um, they also usually have, like I said, disorganized thinking. They usually have um, what we call negative symptoms of flat affect. So people with psychosis are usually seriously mentally ill. They're people with schizophrenia. They're disconnected from reality. And the course of treatment for psychosis or any other psychotic disorder, bipolar with psychotic features, schizoaffective disorder, is antipsychotic medications. Um, okay. Psychopath is completely different. Psychopaths typically are um, individuals who have lack of remorse. They have no empathy. They have, they usually engage in, they can usually engage in criminal activity. They are pathological liars. They are um, people who uh, just really don't have, I mean, the easiest way to put it is kind of a conscience. So okay. your Jeffrey Dahmer's, your Ted yeah. So they're not mentally ill. They have a cluster of symptoms that allows them to be somebody who just really has no empathy and no remorse. Um, they usually are not very responsible people. They're usually impulsive. Some of the other factors are substance abuse, pathological lying, criminal mm -hmm. engaging different criminal activities. So uh, that's a psychopath. It's very different mm -hmm. from somebody who's schizophrenic who's actually mentally ill. So now in studying psychopaths, <clears throat> is there like a gene that makes someone a psychopath? <laughs> and uh, you have such good questions. So there's not, <laughs> there's not a gene per se, but a lot of the research has shown that there is a lot of what we call predispositions. And there's a lot of neuro neuropsychological research or neurological research, research showing that the brains of psychopaths are very different. So 
what the current research says when it comes to are, are there are some people just born evil and is, are they right. born psychopaths? That's a very good question. And there's some research to show that with some people, yes, that's kind of what happens. But most of the research is a biopsychosocial approach. So they might be born with this predisposition for psychopathy, and then it's up to the environment to kind of shape that. And so if you're born with a predisposition for psychopathy, but you have very nurturing parents and you have very uh, a healthy household and good nutrition and, you know, you have good modeled behavior and you get an education and you're not impoverished and you have a very good upbringing, chances are you won't turn into a full-blown psychopath. You might have maybe less empathy and not so much remorse but if you're guided into like a pro-social way of life maybe you'll end up being a ceo you know they say Mm. ceos you know that's the other thing there's a lot of research now on white collar psychopaths so not necessarily your jeffrey dummers and your ted bundy's but maybe your politicians somebody comes to (laughs) mind (laughs) seriously Or, uh, you know, a CEO, like a Jeff Bezos. I'm not saying Jeff Bezos is a psychopath, but like a Jeff Bezos and Elon Musk. Yeah, 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 yeah. So you get the gist. So so that person might end up, end up, you know, having the pre, the person who's born with a predisposition to psychopathy, but ends up having a nurturing, healthy childhood, healthy relationships might end up in a, you know, more prestigious kind of like a Jeffrey Epstein. Jeffrey mm-hmm. Epstein, perfect example of a psychopath who never ever went to jail, but he was probably a psychopath. Um, okay, wait, hold on. Yeah. Yes. Explain his story a little bit because I don't even know who that is. <laughs> oh, okay. So Jeffrey Epstein, um, he was the guy that committed suicide committed suicide at Rikers Island. He was a very um he was a sex offender who um was in a high society, he hung out with Trump and the Clintons, and apparently mm-hmm. he had a sex trafficking ring, and he provided underage girls to very prominent people, rich politicians and rich businessmen all over the world. Um, he was kind of the R. Kelly of the upper echelon, if you will. Oh, my God. Um, okay, so he never went to jail, and he probably never murdered anyone, but odds are he was a psychopath. And yet, you know, when we think psychopath, we think Ted Bundy, Jeffrey Dahmer, right, right. Night, Night Stalker. Right. So that's not necessarily true. Um, so going back, if you have somebody who's born with a predisposition for psychopathy and they are put in a non-nurturing household with a lot of trauma and abuse, and maybe they don't have good nutrition and they don't have good education, then they are more likely to go end up being, you know, mm-hmm. a very dangerous criminal. Mm-hmm. So it's wow. complicated. It's compl- It's a lot more complicated than, you know, a two hour Netflix special makes it out. To right. <laughs> you yeah, know, exactly. Um, and I'm like, there's so many, even when you watch those things, yes, you're gaining some information and a little bit of insight, but there's still so many questions that come up that I'm not going to learn from a documentary. Yeah, like, I'm yeah. just going to learn a certain person's story and what they went through, but that's not a one size fits all for everyone. Right. Exactly. And so I think the problem is that we see just one documentary or maybe like four or five, whatever. And it's just like people just run with it, whatever information that, oh, now all psychopaths are like this and all serial killers are like that. And it's like, no. And you're always <laughs> watching the documentary, like, where did it go wrong? Like, what were the Yes. Or, yeah. And, and we have to yes. remember the documentaries are always shot from one perspective and they're meant to last in one hour to two hours. So of course there's a bunch of information that we're missing. Right, but, right, right, right. 
Oh my god, this is so fun. Okay, are you okay? Are you good? Yes, do you need yes, a break? Yes, I'm all I'm very flexible. Do whatever you need to do. Okay, awesome. No, I wanna, you know, just make sure. I wanna respect your time. No, um no. okay. So oh perfect. So you were saying about like psychopaths, a flat affect, right? Can come. And they have like a lot of the net like the regular, I guess, emotions that like human beings would just have towards each other. So um I guess I wanted to know then would they be like considered um like we always say antisocial? Yes. Right? Right. But right. there's also something called asocial. Yes. And so growing up, I remember, you know, I wasn't the most friendly person. My mother would be like, Oh my god, you're so antisocial. Why are you and I'm like, but then I saw a video and you explained the difference. So let's get into that. What is the difference between being antisocial and being asocial? Yes, yes. Um, and, and I'm with you, right? Because everybody in, in layman's world, everybody uses antisocial as somebody who doesn't want to hang around people or doesn't want to leave the house, you know. And right. um, you know, that's that's just the term for um for for how we use it in regular everyday talk. But in clinical lingo, antisocial actually means somebody who doesn't respect societal norms. So it's a fancy way of saying basically a criminal. So mm -hmm. if you're antisocial, it's it's actually more an appropriate term because it means you're anti-social norms. So you like to break the law, you like to lie, you like to cheat, you like to steal, you like to do mm -hmm. all sorts of, you know, not good things. Whereas mm -hmm. asocial is really how we talk about antisocial. Asocial is more, I don't feel like hanging out with people. I don't want to leave my house. People annoy me. I'm asocial. Right. So that's actually the difference between antisocial <laughs> and asocial in the clinical world. But I get that in the non-clinical world, people use antisocial all the time. Mm -hmm. Right. <laughs> so uh, okay so but can a psychopath i mean obviously they could be and you could be antisocial and asocial yeah for sure okay for sure so they're not like completely exclusive from correct each other. correct got it got it all right so then also i saw an interview that you did with someone else i don't remember her name but she was really she had a tattoo she was really pretty oh <laughs> she Mac. she's yes awesome. i she's literally saw pretty. the whole thing last night it was amazing thank you um so you guys mentioned something because there was a lot of jargon that you guys used and I was like, what are they talking about? But like you were in your, your zone, like you were in your zone. Um, yes. What are cluster B disorders? Very good question. So cluster B disorders and look at me, I'm such a dork. I have my DSM. I love you. <laughs> yes. Okay. So I actually will get right to the, right to the source. So yes. personality disorders are different from psychiatric disorders, right? Okay. Personality disorders is like an, it's like an enduring pattern of inner experience and behavior that's really ingrained in your character, right? So it's not like bipolar or depression or anxiety or schizophrenia, where there's like a, um, more of a neurological component. Uh, personality disorder really is what it sounds like. It's part of your personality. It's your mm -hmm. character. And it's so it's a lot kind of harder to treat. And so we have cluster A personality disorders, cluster B personality disorders, and cluster Got C it. personality disorders. So that's just how they like, you know, break them down. So cluster B personality disorders are, they consist of antisocial personality disorder, borderline personality disorder, and histrionic personality disorder. So cluster B personality, cluster B personality disorders are really known as the kind of, um, how do I say this without sounding, um, you know, like I'm talking down about personality disorders, cluster B personality oh. 
Americans are really the more um, dramatic, emotional, kind of unpredictable personality disorder. Got it. Um, so yes, it's antisocial, borderline, histrionic, and narcissistic. So I was just going to say, where does narcissism yeah, fall there? Narcissistic you know, that's another popular too. term now. Yes. Everyone's a narcissist. Yes. yes. That's, those <laughs> are your cluster B personality disorders. So again, they're very dramatic. They're very over, over, uh, over emotional, very unpredictable. Mm -hmm. Um, those are, that's the cluster B personality disorder. Okay. So. I would say like, is it possible for you? I mean, do you treat all of those or do you say, no, I'm just going to focus on this cluster or that cluster? Like, so I haven't engaged in treatment in a very long time, but I did treatment for 20 years. Um, I think most therapists kind of specialize with certain yeah. personality disorders, but um, as a general rule, most therapists and psychologists are pretty uh, trained in all of the personality disorders. Got it. Some people specialize in just narcissistic personality disorders. Right. A couple of psychologists on IG who put out wonderful content. Some people are just more uh, focused on borderline personality disorder, which has specialized treatment because it's pretty hard to treat. Mm -hmm. um, so it depends on the clinician. It depends on the practitioner. Okay. I was going to say, what's your favorite, I guess, diagnosis? <laughs> so my favorite diagnosis is schizophrenia, because to me, people who have struggle with schizophrenia, they're considered seriously mentally ill. And usually when you see them, they're kind of disconnected with reality. They're mm -hmm. talking to themselves if they're not medicated. They're mm -hmm. talking to themselves. You can tell that they're hearing voices. They say things that really don't make sense. And a lot of mm -hmm. times, you know, they're just, they're just kind of lost in the world. And so I love working with schizophrenic patients because when you see them going from completely psychotic to just kind of like out there, it's so usually they're homeless mm -hmm. or, you know, they're living in, you know, yeah, usually they're, you know, they're homeless if they don't have mm -hmm. family support. And when you get them medicated and you get them into treatment and they start to become better, it's yeah. like the best feeling in the world. Like, mm -hmm. I know that sounds super corny, but it's like, I know I love that. Yeah. I love, like, I, I remember I worked with one schizophrenic patient. He was uh, an inmate in a California prison and he used to hear mm -hmm. a lot of voices and he was very paranoid. So, he, for example, he would go to his cell and watch TV and he used to think that the, the TV was talking to him because he was psychotic. And so he used to come back to me and say, you know, Dr. Haji, like, I just feel like, like the TV is always talking to me. So anytime there was a commercial, he would mm -hmm. think that commercial was targeting him. He was very paranoid. Wow. And he was, yeah, he was very psychotic, but he was able to understand that he was psychotic because he had right. been for a while. So I remember we started working on coping skills where I would tell him, Mr. So-and-so, when the TV, when you think the TV is talking to you or the commercial about, you know, the Hershey bar or the auto insurance commercial, try and challenge your thoughts and say, well, maybe they're not talking to me. Maybe this is a commercial for everyone who's watching TV. And so we started working on little coping skills like that. And I remember after two, three months of treatment, he came running into group because I ran a group for psychotic patients. And he said, Dr. Haji, Dr. Haji, last night I was watching TV and I thought the TV was talking to me and I started to get really anxious and I started to get really scared. And then I remembered to, to tell myself, you know, it's it's not just me. This is a commercial mm -hmm. for everyone. And I started to realize that I was just hearing voices and like he started to get better. And I was like, oh, my God, like, you know, like, yeah. yeah. And so. So people think, oh, they're schizophrenic, like they're sick mm -hmm. and they're never going to function properly. But that's not true. You can really yeah. schizophrenia 
can with medication and treatment, they can, some of them can lead normal lives. So those are my, those are my favorite. That's my favorite. Would you say with schizophrenia that, um, I guess bringing it more like how you did on a more conscious level and having them like talk it out instead of kind of sitting in that, that helps. Yes. But I mean, honestly, the first line of treatment is medication because if they're really psychotic and they're not even able to attend. And what kind of medication is it? So they're usually called antipsychotics. There's Haldol, there's Risperdal, okay. there's Thorazine. There's a lot of okay. many different kinds of um, antipsychotic medication. So psychiatry is really needed with psychotic patients because if yeah. they're if they're like this and talking to themselves and just kind right. of not even present, like you can't mm-hmm. really get to them. So they have to be yeah. usually medicated first to get kind of stable, and then you can start the therapy. So the medication does what more or less like just sedate them a little yeah, bit. Well, or... Yes. Unfortunately, a lot of it is sedated, okay. but you don't want to sedate okay. them so much that they're like, you know, not able right. to participate. But just a little more relaxed, a little more relaxed, a little, what it does is it diminishes the voices. Mm-hmm. Uh, antipsychotic medications are amazing. Some, some schizophrenic people get on antipsychotics and the psychotic symptoms go away completely. Um, some of them, it just diminishes the voices or it, it helps them to think more clearly. So they're able to like this guy, like the guy that I'm talking about, he was mm-hmm. on a lot of antipsychotic medications. He needed them just to, in order to be able to get to the point where he's like, you know, Dr. Haji, I was hearing voices, but I realized that they were just voices. Like in mm-hmm. order for him to process the therapy and get to the place where he realizes he's psychotic, he needed those medications. Yeah. Yeah. So. Yeah. Oh my goodness. Yeah, that's um, my so diagnosis. <laughs> no, yeah, it's funny because I was reading an article about it and there was this girl that she actually, so there's actually like a YouTube community for people who have schizophrenia. Like they put their stories out there. They even, I don't know what it's called when they go from like one person to the other. Uh-huh. There's like a word, but I don't um, know. Well, they used to call it multiple <laughs> personality disorder or they dissociate or they, they, yeah, psychotic episode. Yeah. Yeah. So like one of the girls I went on YouTube and I looked up her video and she's like, she's Daniel. She's somebody else. Like she, um, oh wait, you're talking about schizophrenia. Yeah. You're thinking, <laughs> multiple, you're, you're thinking multiple personality yeah. disorder. Yeah yeah, yeah. 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 That's yeah. the one that I find really fascinating. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like yeah. that one was cool. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so I wanted to know you worked in a prison and you had shared a story about, um, how there was like a riot in your mm-hmm. prison. I want you to tell that story. I thought that the message behind it was really, really good. I agree. So I was very young. I was 23. I only had a bachelor's degree. It was a minimum security prison in New Jersey. And um, I remember one day I was just, um, my my office happened to be in the middle of the pods. Like, so literally I was surrounded by inmate cells and then my office was in the middle. I don't know what architect thought that was a good idea, but anyway, <laughs> um, you'd be surprised. It's very, offices in prison are crazy, but so this one was in the middle of the pod. And so I would be surrounded by inmates all the time. And I remember one day I heard some kind of ruckus, something was going on. I didn't know. And a bunch of inmates came running to me and they said, um, you know, I didn't have my doctor yet. I said, Ms. Haji, Ms. Haji, get in your office and lock the door. And I was like, what the hell is going on? They were like, just listen to us, get in your office and lock the door. So I was like, okay. So I got in my office, locked the door. And, and what ended up happening was there was a riot, like a full blown prison riot. It was the Latin Kings and the bloods that were going at it. They were fighting, they were shanking. It was a mess. And a bunch of inmates surrounded my office to protect me from the violence getting to me and getting into my office. And I Mm -hmm. love that story. And I share that story because like you said, it highlights Mm -hmm. 
these stereotypes that inmates are horrible, bad human beings. Um, you know, at the end of the day, if you treat inmates with respect, you always have, you know, your couple of a-holes and your psychopaths. Of course. That's everywhere. Yeah, that's everywhere. Exactly. You have some inmates that really just don't give a F and they're just going to do whatever they're going to do. But I would say that 90 to 95% of inmates are people who just went down the wrong path in life. And if you treat them with respect, they will treat you with respect. They will be fiercely loyal, especially back then. You know, it's changed a little bit now, but there's a whole code of ethics and prison rules. You know, you don't mess. They kind of view you as a sister, a mother, a wife, a girlfriend. And so I was there to help them. You know, I was considered the helper. I was the counselor. So they're going to be fiercely loyal and fiercely defend the person who's helping them. And mm-hmm. I, I shared that story on my IG because I think people just think, oh, people in prison are, are bad yeah. humans. You lock them up and throw away the key and there's yeah. no redemption and F them. And it's like, no, that's not how this works. You know, you mm-hmm. have to individualize inmates just the way you individualize people in the community, you know? Yeah. I actually love that because even like, okay, it's easy for them, I guess, to trust you because they get vulnerable with you and you don't share their secrets, you keep it quiet. But just how you even trusted them. Like when they said, go into yeah. your office, lock yourself, you were like, all right, I'm going to trust my boy. Yes. <laughs> Instead yes. of being like, no, I'm not going to my office. What are you talking about? I'm going to talk to the guards or something. You know what I mean? Like, yeah, yeah. You no, also trusted sure. them. Absolutely. It's a two way yeah. street because I, mm-hmm. I, you know, I, I didn't think they were telling me go in the office so we can rape and murder you. I mean, I, right. I I knew something was going on, but the, the, they came to me with a sense of urgency. And I thought, you know, um, yeah, it's a two way street. I, they, you know, you, you never trust anybody, especially in prison. 100%. You would be a fool to do that just because it's prison. But um, yeah, it was, it was a great, and I have more stories. I have, I have stories of inmates who have given CPR to correction officers when they saw they were having a heart attack, save them. Yeah. Um, you don't hear about those stories on the news. You only hear about the bad stuff because it's clickbait and you're get more viewers, but yeah, and they're, so they're in jail, they're animals. They're yeah. Like, yeah. They don't generate. Yeah. They're, yeah. They don't count. They're not human beings. And it's like, no, I've mm-hmm. seen, I've heard, I've heard and seen inmates give CPR to correction officers having heart attacks. I've heard inmates uh, save other inmates from committing suicide. I saw a story the other day where they, they caught their celly um, hanging from a noose and they cut him down we you know like and saved his life i mean there you hear there are stories like that all the time but again we don't hear that part in the media you know that's amazing that should be a show there should be a show like highlighting that yes no but instead we got orange is the new black yes (laughs) yeah oh my god that would actually be awesome look into it you can probably direct it (laughs) i should i should should. that stuff happens all the time yeah no that's amazing to highlight um, I wanted to know, I guess, who was your favorite patient, I guess, without violating HIPAA, of course, keep me as generous as possible. Like who like really stands out to you? So I have a couple. I have the one I just discussed, the schizophrenic yeah. who started to get a lot of insight and he started to get better and he started to understand his psychosis. And then I have another one who I worked with actually in a at Sing Sing in New York, in um, Asining. So I was at Sing Sing for a couple of years and there was this one patient and he was, you know, not, not that this is something you should look at as a clinician, but he was a very good looking guy. He was a high ranking gang member. Um, he, I think it was, I, I don't even remember what gang, but he was a very high ranking gang member. And he was, you know, a pretty buff, good looking like guy who was in for some pretty serious crimes. He had what's called major depressive disorder with psychotic features. So it's not exactly schizophrenia where you're disconnected from reality all the time. But what happens is when these individuals get very, very depressed, then they get psychotic symptoms. So they'll get like, they'll start to hear voices 
or they'll start to see things. They'll have psychotic symptoms. And he had major depressive disorder with psychotic features. However, since he was a high ranking gang member, coming to mental health was a huge no, no. Like those used to be the gang rules because it was considered a weakness. You don't go to mental health. So if you go to mental health, you can be like, you know, kicked out of your gang, which is a huge deal in prison. Um, you can't take meds because that's looked down upon, especially back then. This was in like 2007 or something. So um, he didn't care. He was willing to fight for his mental health. And so he would sneak to mental health to get therapy, to get treatment, to get his meds. And that was very dangerous for him to do that. He was taking a big risk because he could have been beat up or, you know, jumped or kicked out of his gang, whatever. And he did that consistently for, I would say, one to two years. And, you know, you don't get a lot of thank yous in prison because once they're you're gone or they're gone, there is not supposed to be any contact. But about two, three years later, I got a letter from him. He didn't sign it, but I knew it was him. And he talked about he had been released from prison and he talked about he had also uh, struggled with addiction. So he talked about that he was sober, that he was stable, that he got a job that he um, regained custody of his son and that he had, was off probation and that he had, he wanted to thank me for helping him through his time. And I know, oh my God, oh my God, I know. Oh my God. So it's one of those field, because you usually you don't, you don't know what happens to inmates unless you hear about them on the news or you see that they come back. You really just don't get to know what happens. And mm -hmm. so when he wrote this letter saying like, you know, I, I'm employed, I'm sober, I'm taking my meds, I'm stable, I have a job and I have custody of my son and I've and I finished probation successfully. I was like, that one letter kept me going for like 10 years. You know what oh, I mean? Yeah. If you can help one person mm -hmm. just get out of that horrible gang, gang mm -hmm. life, get out of prison, get their mental health on track, get sober from addiction and have them live a good, happy, healthy life. Like it makes it all the craziness worthwhile. It, you it might save the life. Like, oh, I don't know about that. He chose, you know what? He chose to save his own life. I'll say that. Yeah, but you he helped. <laughs> you were there. Sometimes people just need the tools. Like they yes. don't know what else to do. And you provided the tools. So that's huge. Thank you. I appreciate that. Oh, but... claps for you. <laughs> no, for real. Like that. This is amazing. I'm like loving this. I'm nerding out right now. Yeah. Um, okay. A few more questions and then we're done. Yes. I wanted to know. Um all right, so we do a lot of like gender conversations on the podcast, like women and men, blah, blah, blah. So I wanted to know what is the difference between the motives behind women serial killers and male, or maybe like psychopaths, let's just say. Like, what are the m motives? Are they different for women than for men? Um, that's a really good question. I'm actually not that well versed in that area only because I only worked mm -hmm. with female offenders for like a year, but I'm sure there are different motives. I don't know if you ever watched uh monster with Charlize Theron, Eileen, she played Eileen Wernos, a famous serial killer. So Eileen Wernos is a, was a famous serial killer. I think she, I think she was executed in the state of Florida. She was a prostitute and she had a pretty traumatic history, but she murdered like a bunch of Johns, you know, guys that get that, you know, pay for pay for prostitutes. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. She murdered a bunch of Johns. So in a lot of people's books, she was kind of, you know, a hero. Like, you know, these yeah. guys are paying for sex and a lot of them are abusing these women and cheating yeah. on their wives. And so she just oh, she went on a yeah, so she just went on a rampage. I know we shouldn't be laughing, but I can't help it. No. So she killed a bunch of these guys. Um it turns out that she was like a female psychopath. Like she had no remorse, no empathy. Um, you know, she was a drug user. I mean, she had all mm -hmm. the characteristics of a psychopath. So, but mm -hmm. I always found her case interesting because in her case, there was kind of a, like a clear cut motive. You know, she was, 
and you should watch that movie. It's called Monster. Charlize Theron. Let me write it. Yeah, Charlize Monster. Theron plays. Um, and I can email it to you. She plays. Um, she plays Eileen Wernos. She did a great job, by the way. Um, and so you almost had this idea, kind of like you know, I mean, you're you're way younger than me, but kind of like Scarface, where you root for the bad guy. You're yeah. almost like rooting for her because you're like you know, these poor women who are selling their bodies and they're, you know, they have addictions and they're homeless and they have no family and they have nothing, you know, and they're getting abused and abused and abused. And she's going out there and she's kind of being like a vigilante, if you will. And yeah. I'm not, saying, I'm not. No, of course not. I'm not I saying get it. murder is okay. You get it, you know, but you're. Of course. Of course. Me. Oh, you're saying murder is okay. Oh, whatever. No, but there was a very clear cut motive. Whereas I find that motives for male serial killers are a little bit more all over the place. Um, but usually motives are, are, are rage and, uh, you know, control and power. Mm -hmm. So, um, yeah, I kind of digress. I don't know if the but the motive, a female psychopath and a male psychopath will typically mm -hmm. have the same characteristics, those same yeah. that, you know, I, I, I talked about. So. I don't know that the motives are that different, although women psychopaths and women serial killers are much, le much less frequent than uh, male psychopaths and ma male yeah. psychopaths. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. But they do exist. Yeah. Um, I mean, I don't know, but I used to like binge watch Snapped when I was younger. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Snapped is awesome. So that was like amazing. So it's like, I, that's why I wanted to ask that question. Um, okay, do two more. Do you believe that we all have some type of like diagnosis? Like we're all a little bit of something. <laughs> you know uh, what I mean? I, I don't think we all have some diagnosis. I've evaluated many people who just don't have a diagnosis and they live happy, healthy, fruitful lives. But you have to remember mm -hmm. that the DSM-5, which is kind of like, you know, the, the Bible for mental health practitioners, it's kind of like the book of people who have something wrong with them, like a disorder. Mm -hmm. So it's kind of like going to the doc medical doctor and saying, well, everybody has something wrong with them. Well, no, some people have no allergies, no cancer, no high blood pressure, no diabetes. Some people are just very, very healthy. So I, and they just don't have any issues. They don't take any meds. Mm -hmm. I think it's the same um, with psychological or psychiatric disorders where some people are, you know, pretty generally mentally, mentally healthy. I think what's different with mental health, which is kind of similar to physical health is that, you know, life ebbs and flows. And so sometimes people will experience sadness or anxiety, or they might have grief or they might have, you know, but does that mean that they meet criteria for a actual diagnosis? Not necessarily, but do, but I do think everybody, you know, everybody's life is so different and everybody has experienced different things and have different childhoods and different ways that they process things and different ways of acting and thinking. So we're all mm -hmm. a little bit different. Maybe there are times in our life where we might meet criteria for a diagnosis, like a grief diagnosis or an anxiety diagnosis. Um, but as a general rule, do I think everybody has some sort of diagnosis? No, I think everybody has some sort of psychological traits or issues mm -hmm. yeah <laughs> diagnosis yeah. Is really really up there up there yeah um okay last question yes. who is your favorite uh, serial killer so my favorite serial killer is actually the night stalker richard ramirez do you are you familiar with him oh, pull him up on pull him up on google if you can so um first of all he was a pretty uh so they called him the night stalker richard ramirez mm -hmm. Um, so he's that guy that there's always a famous picture of him with uh, a Pentagon on his hand. 
Um, yes, I see it. Yes. Okay. So the reason he was so interesting to me, and let me say that it's not because I'm like a fan. It's because I think he's cl- clinically fascinating. Yeah. So most serial killers, they have like a type. Like if you look at Ted Bundy's victims, they were all brown haired girls, like in their 20s, they had their hair parted in the middle. Like he had a very specific type. Jeffrey Dahmer, he preyed upon, you know, underprivileged, black and brown, typically ethnic, um, mm-hmm. young gay males. Mm-hmm. Um, so the interesting thing about Richard Ramirez is he had like no type. And that's why it was really hard for, for a law enforcement to find him. I mean, he killed old women, he killed children, he he killed women, he killed men, he killed with like suffocation, stabbing. He had all sorts of different kind of MOs for killing. Sometimes yeah. he raped and engaged in sexual abuse and sometimes he didn't. So he was like all over the place. Oh my goodness. Yeah. yeah. So from a clinical perspective, I find that really fascinating because it's like, no wonder they never caught him. Like he was just, you know, usually that people, serial killers have a type and they have a way that they engage in the murder. You know, either they tie people up or they stab them or they shoot them. He was like all over the place with it. Actually, there's a Netflix documentary on him. You should watch. It's really interesting. Oh I can, yeah, I will. I can send you all this stuff on, on, on email. Please. Um, yeah. So he is my favorite because they really just could not figure out what his deal was. And so I would have loved to like do psychological assessments on him and figure out like, bro, what is going on? <laughs> you know what yeah, I mean? Like what's happening? Yeah. Here? What, what's your deal? Like what drives you? That's, I don't know. So, oh my gosh, this was so amazing. It was so fun. I'm so I glad feel like I learned you. so much. And I think yeah. my listeners are really gonna enjoy this. So I'm happy. And I want to say just thank you for doing what you do. Oh, thank you. It matters. I mean, you've seen how much it matters. And um, we just need more people like you who are dedicated because, you know. You as well. We Speech live pathology in. is absolutely oh, yeah. So good for you. Yeah, yeah. Good thank you. you. That's thank awesome. You. Yeah. yeah. Thank you. <laughs> um, so, yeah, hopefully we can do this again. Yes. Because I'm always coming up with questions. And thank you for doing this again. Absolutely. It was a pleasure to meet you and bother me anytime. Okay. Oh, and send me the email with all this stuff. I will, I will, I will. Yes. All right. Bye. Thank you. Bye. Okay. So did you like the interview, Anthony? Yes, I did. Yes. I'm glad. I love the question about asking who's your favorite serial killer. Because it's like one of those things that I think everyone, well, I don't say everyone because you. I don't have a favorite serial killer. You're not as experienced with like serial no. killers and things like this. No. And you can tell like with the questions I was asking her, Correct. I was I was like, so what about this? And what about that? But myself, growing up, I knew about all these people, and I was, was kind of fascinated by these people. Like, one of my favorite movies is Silence of the Lambs. Oh, God, no. I, I care. Top five favorite. I used to watch that with my mom as a kid. That is I love that movie. Twisted. Yeah, so, like, all these type of people, like Ted Bundy's, Richard Ramirez, right, right, um, right. Charles Manson's, and, like, all these people, Jeffrey Dahmer. Yeah. I've grown up knowing about all these people, especially a lot of them got arrested in, like, early 90s. Yeah, yeah. So it was just dope to hear someone say like oh she studies them yeah. but she does she's fascinated i don't say it's her favorite but like she's no but she's fascinated by that case yeah and we need people who are brave enough to do that because i couldn't fucking do that mm-hmm. like i couldn't work with people who are have like eaten people and like no come on i just i i, I don't even know how the fuck i would do that so i actually told her that too i'm like yo what you do is amazing 
she actually helps a lot of people even like get out of those like really bad um like habits and lead normal lives so i think that that's amazing but i really liked what she highlighted about like the positives of the inmates like not all of like you know the way the media portrays them is like they're animals there you don't deserve to like live normal lives they need to be treated like they're animals and the way that she highlighted like how loyal they can be how respectful they can be how they hold you down they held her down and um i just thought that was really dope it would be cool to have a show i told her she should start a show <laughs> like highlighting the positives of like the prison system because yo and the inmates and you'd be surprised because i've been i went to prison a lot growing up yeah it's a it's big on they're big on respect. Yeah. In prisons. They're mm-hmm. really big on respect. They have more respect a lot of times than people out here in Which the is crazy. World. Like it's it's different. It's a whole different world. Everything is based off of respect. You yeah. don't disrespect people there. Yeah. So anyway, hope you guys enjoyed the interview and we will see you next week. Right? Yes. Okay, bye guys. Peace.